Hi everyone, welcome back to the Parma podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. Um, and uh, today, a new guest again. We seem to have a lot of new guests this year. It's fantastic. I love having new guests on the show. And uh, uh, this one's been a long time coming. We've been trying to set this up for months. And uh, now she is finally here. Um, <laughs> uh, welcome to the show, Mandy Capehart. Hello, James. Thank you for having me and for being so patient with my loaded schedule. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I, like I was saying off air, like my, my, my schedule's busy as well. Like, I have loads of podcast recordings to do and, and a day job and other things. So uh, yeah, I totally get that. Um, and uh, I'm just glad you're here now. i um, followed your work for quite a while and it's um, really important work you do. Um, I'm going to talk about that today. So you're a, um, you are, a, uh, you do a lot of work in around grief, which is something mm. that we talk about a lot on this show. Um, um, podcasting, coaching, uh, writing, um, you know, all sorts of different things. And uh, um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about that with you today. Um, so just tell us a bit about about you and, and, and who you are. Good question. So yeah, my name's Mandy. I live over in the States in Southern Oregon on the Pacific Coast. I became a published author last year, but I started working in grief uh, probably back in 2016, 2017. Um, after I had a significant loss of losing my mom right away. And that uh, right away, meaning unexpectedly, she was sick and then suddenly she was gone. Um, but mm. so I transitioned my job after the pandemic shut down the industry I was working in at the time and have become a very strong advocate for grievers and grief supporters to really learn what it means to hold space without becoming accusatory of self or judgmental or condemning of the process and how wild it can be. So I do all of that in the middle of, or I guess through the, <laughs> through the method of writing and online conversations, hosting classes, teaching at seminars, uh, writing a book, hosting podcasts, all the different opportunities I can to bring up grief um, and just the way that it changes how we move through the world. I take the opportunity. So Mm, yeah, and I've been to some of your workshops and events and things that you've done. Of yeah, you do some amazing work. Um, it really is. Oh, fantastic. thanks. And uh, yeah, and these conversations are really, really important. I, you know, I talk about this topic a lot on my show um, for the same reason. Um, I've done series, lots of series on on it. I'm, you know, I try to talk about it as often as I can because it, it's it's really, really important. We 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 talk about grief and we talk about yeah. loss um, more because it's something we all experience um, more often than we probably think we do. Um, <laughs> right? Exactly. Um, exactly. Right now. Yeah. Um, so just tell us a bit of your story and your kind of lived experience of grief and of losing, mm -hmm. losing a parent. Yeah, you know, I'm in my late 30s now. And when I started talking publicly about grief after my mom passed, I did some reflection and realized I can't quite remember a year of my life 
that I hadn't lost someone, whether it was a family member or a friend or a neighbor, there is always in some way loss of life connected to our story. And so you interweave that with divorces and betrayals and moving and all the other different ambiguous losses I'd experienced as a young adult and losing my mom layered on top of that when my daughter was about a year and a half old was the catalyst into this new direction. You know, my mom was a rock. She was an incredibly strong, guarded woman. And so as I grew up, I understood strength to be something that you presented outwardly and cultivated inwardly. And as she was dying, I recognized, I see so many places, like in her face, I would see these moments where I just wanted her to soften. I wanted her to be honest. I wanted her to tell me what was going through her mind. And after she died, I realized there were so many stories about her that I didn't know and characteristics that I I guess I'd assumed about her that I wasn't sure about. And so as I've reflected on my own life and grief and how I move through the world, it's certainly changed even my own story to this one that has become a place of softening, a place of um, looking at a rubber band that's completely taut, which was my life (laughs) at the time, and learning how to uh, slacken and learning how to just release some of the pressure so that I don't feel like I have to have that internal steel rod holding me upright all the time, that I can, you know, go into a puddle sometimes. And that has been a complete personality shift for me as someone who's always been very, um, how do I want to say it nicely about myself? Intrusive is not the word, but like shows up in a room and just inserts myself into the conversations, into the situations as uh, someone who carries a lot of just extroversion in who I am. Um, Losing my mom and doing this work has turned me into a person who's very much an observer, who has become very, not introverted, but just more willing to listen first and most of the time. So all of the coaching conversations and relationships I've been building over the last uh, few years as well has become this amazing opportunity to just observe humanity in it from a new light. And I love it. Yeah, I know what you mean. It is different when when you've done the grief work um, and you understand grief and you've experienced it in that way, it does give you a whole different lens on the world. My, uh, my perspective of things changed significantly when my mother died. Um, my perspective on what was worth getting upset about and what wasn't. Right. Um, <laughs> Right, um, that changes very quickly. It's like um, it's it's like well, it's like other people get angry about little things, and you know, and and you think, and and then in your brain, you're thinking, well, you know what, I'm I'm not going to get angry about that because actually, there's probably more important things to get angry or upset about. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's something that you only understand when you've been through trauma or grief. I think that you get just a different lens on on the world, um, and yeah, I mean, what was what did grief look like for you? How did that kind of manifest in your in your body and in your behaviour? It's a really good question, James. I have always been someone that is very 
uh, active and very engaged, but also very detached mentally from my body. My body was just something that got me through the day that I could use as I needed to, that I would rest if I had overdone it. And after my mom died, I took a week of just stiff upper lip and survived everything. We got through all of the practical of someone dying and what you have to go through with their estate and cremation and and bills and all of those things. Uh, and then about three months after she died, maybe two, I was in a position to do this intense boot camp, for lack of a better word, that was all about CrossFit exercise. And I have always been an athlete. I've always been pretty athletic, um, but I wanted to try this thing because I needed a distraction. I needed something different. And they'd been doing it. They were friends of mine, and they'd been doing this class for probably six months to a year at that point. And I'd kept saying, you know, I'm not going to do it with you because I'm way too competitive. I will hurt myself if I try to do CrossFit because I will try to outlift everyone and it will go very badly. But I decided, you know what, what have I got to lose? I'm pretty much heartbroken. If I don't do something different, I'm going to snap. So I decided to take this class that was, I think it was two days a week and I was super intense. And by the end of the six-week class, I got to the end of myself. I had pushed myself beyond physical limits. I had deadlifted way more than I expected. I shoulder pressed more than anyone in the class. And all I kept thinking through the class is this is because I'm so strong. I've always been so strong. Externally, internally, that's all this is. And what it revealed to me was this need for weakness, this need to embrace that soft side of me where, yeah, I'm standing in a room of 25 women and I'm shoulder pressing over 100 pounds and they're struggling with 30. And here am I criticizing in my head like, okay, you can't shoulder press 30 pounds. You're a mother. I've seen you lift five children at one time. What are you doing? Right? And it was, it was the most inane moment for myself to realize I am so out of balance and disconnected from my body. It doesn't matter if I can shoulder press how many pounds. What's the state of my heart? It's completely broken. There's nothing strong in it right now. And I deserve a chance to stop being so strong. So I quit the class. I finished the class, um, but decided to go a very different direction as I continued working out uh, and recognizing what my body needed again. And so it went, it turned into, it's been what, five now, five years now since that. It's turned into this really amazing sense of self-care that goes beyond what I can afford to do. So in my mind, self-care is always accessible to anyone. If it's if it's cost prohibitive to one, then that doesn't count as true self-care. It's just a reward. That's just a treat. Um, and so when I started saying, well, what does self-care look like for me? Self-care looks like eating fresh vegetables. Self-care looks like walking during the day instead of sitting all day long. Self-care looks like giving myself five minutes extra to breathe and tell my body, Remember, we know how to breathe in and out without instruction, but we're holding our breath all the time. It created this really significant awareness that has honestly transformed my understanding of myself, recognizing that I am someone who needs to drop down into my body to get the overthinking to stop, to make the the panic and the sorrow just kind of take a back seat, not to be quiet, but just to settle down for a moment. It's has been a significant revelation for me. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah. Because we carry grief in our bodies, don't we? Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. And I, 
I always come back to this 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 quote from a movie that I love um, because it's relevant. Um, it's from The Dark Knight Rises, and um, this guy's police officer is going to visit Bruce Wayne and talk to him about something, and that he talked to him about grief, right? Um, and he's a guy that lost both his parents, this police officer, and Bruce Wayne lost his parents as well. Um, but he's but he's telling him how he found out, realized who he was, and he says that people don't realize what it's like to be angry in your bones. Right. And I was like, when he said that, I was like, oh my god, yes, that's what it is. That's what it's like. It's like it's not this. It's not just this emotional thing. It's like it's in your whole body, right? It's it's like in your bones, you know. Um, yeah. And it needs to be expressed and it needs to be processed and it needs to be acknowledged and allowed space for, which is exactly what you're talking about. Um, making space for it. Like I, I got the whole, when my mother died, everyone told me was like complimenting me on, Oh, you're so strong, James, you know, you're, <laughs> you know, and I was like, at the time I thought yeah. it was a compliment, right? Because that's, it right. sounds like a compliment, but actually it probably being strong wasn't good for my, for me, wasn't good for my yeah. body. Um, I was. I remember being completely numb. I wasn't. I wasn't strong. I was just numb. I didn't feel anything. I chose not to feel anything. Yeah. Because I was trying to be strong for everybody else and take care of everybody else, which is a whole right. other story. Um, right. But, but but in the end, it all came out. You know, and it, it's because it was there. Uh, it came out in anger. Yeah. It came out in tears. It came out in loads of other ways, because it was in my body. Um, and grief often man- grief manifests in our in our body. Whether, whether we choose to or not. Yeah. That thought of anger being down in my bones is such a pivotal revelation too because you were, you're right. The strength is not a virtue. Strength is overrated a lot of the time. And there is a beautiful time for resilience and strength and fortitude. And there is a time for softening. There has to be both. But when it comes to anger and you're trying to navigate in a way that everyone else is benefiting during the grief process, right? You're standing as the strong person on behalf of everyone you love or not making others uncomfortable. You're internalizing grief and anger to the point where it becomes so definitive that you don't necessarily know how to move without it. And the the scary part about that, and that was, that was totally happening for me. I was becoming this just dichotomous, rage-filled, and broken-hearted person, I was swinging so wildly back and forth. And it took recognizing that anger is secondary as an emotion before I could start to unravel the ways it had wrapped itself around my heart. So I had this like just pit of anger within me thinking, if only I can find someone to blame. If only I can determine that my hospital, the hospital my mom was in screwed up, or if I can get a hold of her doctors for not finding the cancer for the whole six months that they were treating her, that they didn't find it. And then all of a sudden it's everywhere. What would if that happened if they caught it six months ago, right? I spent so long trying to blame someone so that I didn't blame myself, so that I didn't have, so that I could find an excuse for why I felt so heartsick and how justified I would be to continue to always be angry about it. And it didn't work. Spoiler alert, the anger didn't solve anything and blaming people didn't solve anything. And there was, it turned out no one really to blame. 
and for me, in that instance, it's applicable, right? It was a natural loss of life through illness. In some situations, of course, there are people you can blame, but that doesn't actually resolve anything. And I think that that revelation for me really helped me, again, like find ways to bring health back into my heart, my mind, my body, and my spirit. And it was just it was just an ugly process getting there, but I think that's what scares people <laughs> off. I'm glad we talk about it to make it demystify it a bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it, it is scary. It's not easy work to do. I'd never romanticize grief work. Um, it's, it's tough work. It's painful. And yeah. you know, there are often tears and there can be anger and all of that. Um, but having And there should be. And there should be, yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. part of it, yeah. <laughs> it's not a clean thing. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, from experience, um, and this is like 22 years later, um, um, I, I can say with certainty that it is, that it is healing and that it is transformative. And yeah. um, it does get better. It does get better. Um, it you know you, it doesn't go away. There's no kind of five step process for getting rid of grief. Um, oh no! <laughs> spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but um, you learn to live with your grief, and you learn to almost befriend it. Um, that's what mm. I found. Um, doesn't mean it's not painful still. Sometimes it's just yeah, you're not you're just more familiar yeah. with it. I guess it, it's not. The rawness has kind of gone out of it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that there's a very strong, um, what do I want to say? I think that there's a beautiful revelation that comes with recognizing that life and grief are two sides of the same coin. No one avoids it. You know, the joke, there's nothing, the only certainty is death and taxes, right? And I think about, well, what about prior to that? Uh, financial woe and grief. Okay. So there are other certainties in life. We will all deal with grief at some point and we can continue to pretend that we are unbothered or don't need help with it or don't really feel what we feel. And some people don't grieve in the same, well, no one grieves in the same way as I or you will grieve, but the reality is we all experience it one way or another. And recognizing that and coming to terms with that, it's kind of like a maturing. It's an unfair emotional maturity that you have to suddenly take on that most of us are not ready for. So not like you can read the book and prepare for it, but learning that there are ways to move through it without sacrificing everything that you love and crying every day and quitting your job. Like you don't have to go through these severe um, life changes necessarily to be able to properly or intentionally grieve your life or grieve what was lost. Uh, and I think that that kind of demystifies the process because it's easy to say like, oh, it gets better. And it does. But in the middle of being completely overwhelmed by grief, someone telling me it gets better doesn't help. It actually really frustrates me because I don't know how to believe that because what I believed prior was that there was certainty or that this person would be healed or this job would never end or this relationship was right. And all of a sudden that's gone. I'm reckoning with a lot more than just the primary loss, right? I have all these secondary losses that have come up in addition to trying to figure out, well, how do I even go on and feel these feelings in a way that feels like I'm going to be okay on the other side of them. 
Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, makes so much sense that. Um, yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. When you do the grief work, it's not. It's it's a it's a lifelong journey, but um, you're not alone in that journey. And there's lots of there's lots of people who have experienced it. Um, that's why that's why the work that you do is so important because it it provides solidarity and it provides lived experience and insight into what it's like um, and just creates space for people to grieve. Um, yeah, in a way where they in a way that's kind of safe, um, where you don't have to be okay. So, what were the biggest, I guess, what were the lessons you learned about yourself as you grieved? Hmm. That is a good question. What I learned about myself was I am obsessed with control. It turns out I assumed I was manipulating and controlling everything in my life. And the truth is I was barely capable of doing one thing a day that was proper and correct and (laughs) looked like taking care and controlling things. So I had this moment of revelation that, okay, I can't control or manipulate this outcome. What can I do differently then? Because I can't avoid this outcome either. I can't avoid this circumstance. So I just decided to start asking the question, well, what if I have no influence over this? What if I can't change anything here? Am I still okay? Do I still have worth? Do I still have value if I can't control this situation or if someone um, believes badly about me? I I mean, it took me into every area of my life, friendship, workplace, uh, relationships at home, every arena. I started looking at and be like, oh, that's how I would subtly control this this situation. I would feel it rise up and have to choose. No, no, that's not your role. You're not this person and you don't get to be in charge of how this turns out. Uh, so it was it was good. I mean, I'm one of those people that's always said, hey, Lord, give me patience, and then assumes that's why I get into a traffic jam, which is ridiculous. But uh, the truth is, when you want humility, you have to be put into positions that are humbling. And losing my mom, I mean, that'll, that'll do it. So I learned that about myself. I also learned that I'm not as grateful. I wasn't as grateful as I thought I was. I assumed that I was doing a really good job practicing gratitude. And certainly I can express it or was expressing it prior. Um, But after going through the grief process really intentionally for myself and watching how it continues to stay with me, even when I don't feel like I'm actively grieving, um, gratitude has become the forefront. It has become the obvious response to the loss I feel and the heaviness, not in a positivity spin, but in a a true, let's stop here. Let's breathe deeply and recognize that I am firmly rooted and I am grateful for that. Or I am connected to three people deeply and I am grateful for that. And it became this um, lifeline for me, for me to truly go beyond appreciating what I have and giving places of honor to those things that again, could also leave me at any time (laughs) that I don't have control over, that I can't manipulate. And yet I still can deeply appreciate and lean into. And you're right when you say, unless you've gone through this, it's really hard to understand it. 
because those moments of what matters become so crystal clear when you have to decide that you get one or two things to focus on, that you have the capacity of an energy and you know presence of mind in a day for two things. What do you want to focus on? Well, I just became very clear on what's important to me then. So I think it refined me in a way that I didn't see coming, that I didn't realize I needed. But I'm grateful as much as I would trade it all for, for <laughs> to go back in time. I am, I'm able to say like, yeah, I'm grateful for that shift and that maturing because again, I was going to encounter it at some point. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah. Grief has a way of shifting things in your personal journey. Um, it's like a jump start in many ways. Um, it kind of, it can bring things, it brings things forward <laughs> um, and it crystallizes other things. Um, and I mean, the reason I asked that question is because I know that my experience has been the same, that doing grief work helped me discover more about who I am um, <laughs> uh, and, and what I believe and, um, and it even shaped what I believe, you know, um, yeah. uh, my, my personal journey, my spiritual journey was, really kick-started by the death of my mother. Um, um, and uh, unlike you, you know, I wouldn't um, change who I've become. Um, but I obviously you would take back your loved one right. you um, <laughs> every single second, right? Um, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, it's always interesting to me how grief reveals things um, about us, about ourselves, yeah. right? I will say the funny thing that it revealed in me was along the lines of like spirituality and formation. I'd been in the church since I was probably seven. I mean, we're a little, like we were raised in the church, but through middle and high school, we really didn't participate. So when I got to college, I got involved in the evangelical church, which, you know, spiraled and goes whichever direction we could go that direction someday too. But, um, after my mom died, I was very involved in church. I was leading worship. I was leading uh, small groups. I was doing all kinds of stuff. And it had been years on years on years. And I was so hurt and confused trying to reconcile the way that churches handled grievers when their entire premise was, let me teach you how to live a life that is full of love and compassion and generosity and connectedness and relationship, but also then boils down to, are you still grieving? Aren't you supposed to be joyful? And as a worship leader, I'm always acutely aware of like song choice and how on any given Sunday, the room is full of people who are conflicted, who are confused, who are hurting, who are struggling. And some of the song choices people would make are offensive and harmful and shout joyful words into the face of the brokenhearted. And so when I decided to write this book, it was primarily to address how churches handle grief, how we're just, they don't know how, they're not trained. Um, and so much of what churches focus on, at least in the evangelical culture that I'm a part of in, the, uh, in America, it's just this mindset of bring life, bring life, speak life, speak scriptures, affirm people. And we completely glaze over the fact that lament is biblical, that it's really actually quite an important and necessary part of human spirituality. And so my book gave me this opportunity to really uh, 
transform my own faith and understanding, but create to also create this environment in my community of, hey, here's what it's like to fall apart. Here's what it's like to create a safe, soft place to land in a world full of sharp corners. Like if you want people's faith to remain intact or to even flourish in the face of grief, you have to stop telling them that everything is going to be okay, that everything happens for a reason, and that your loved ones are better off or that you're be- this happened so that you could move forward because that's BS and it causes nothing but harm. And I just think the church doesn't understand. And I'm saying like the global church, right? It's not, I don't have an excuse or an, an experience with every church, but on the whole, I just don't think people yeah. know how to sit in the discomfort. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the consequences of me, of my grief really was eventually leaving behind religious certainty. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and any kind of evangelical model of church and any kind of, I don't know what, how to word this, but any kind of model of church which is around certainty or which is around avoiding the pain, which is around retreating into um, fundamentalism or certainty to avoid dealing with trauma or pain. Yeah. Um, and um, because what I've learned to, what I've, what I've begun to understand is when you, when, when, when you experience severe grief, there are two responses. You can, you can either lean into the grief and do the grief work and get healed and get healing and learn to live with your grief and be transformed. Or you can lean into certainty and try and pretend it didn't happen and um, numb it with religious certainty and all the things you're talking about, the the kind of the happy songs and the, you know, the avoidance and um, all of that. And um, yeah, and I've seen that happen and, uh, and it's sad because people then don't deal with their grief. And then when, in my experience as well, when, when you don't deal with your grief, it controls you um, in some kind of passive aggressive way. And, um, and yeah. Um, so yeah, we need to have a healthy spirituality, which acknowledges our grief. That's really, really important. Yeah. I think that a lot of it too, maybe not even an addiction to certainty, but just the sense of security is taken when grief enters the chat, right? We have this idea that everything is fairly stable and our stories are going the way we expected them to. And then we have a sudden loss and this idea of security and safety and certainty, which are all intertwined, is really challenged. And so I almost say that it's not it's not so much in my experience that people are so addicted to the certainty that they just numb the grief and pretend it didn't happen, but it's a a lack of knowing how to move forward, N- not even knowing where to begin with challenging their beliefs mm-hmm. around security or certainty, not even knowing that you can actually still hold an incredibly strong faith and be uncertain about absolutely everything in the world and remain so steadfast and so passionate about your faith practi- practices 
while addressing grief and while being open-handed with what you're carrying, whether that's loss, whether that's uh, a, an incredible passionate faith practice, whether that's no faith practice at all, to have that ability to say, I can live open-handed instead of clutching for security in my circumstances and the people around me, it frees us up to become these richer, more involved, intuitive, just truly hope-filled people that are okay being disagreed with, that are okay not experiencing more grief, but ex- we're okay knowing that that's coming because we're not so obsessed with the security of having what is around us. I think about a lot of it as, mm-hmm. I mean, it's an emotional maturity, right? So I think about it as like when I was a kid, I had a, a security blanket. And as I got older, I don't use it anymore. I still have it in my house, but it's been in a crate for 20, 30 years now. The idea that I have it is not, I don't want to throw this out because I need it for security. It's a remembrance of when security was what kept me stable. And now my security doesn't come from an external thing that I can hold on to. It also doesn't come from this belief that I can't prove that I'm just putting it out there with a wish and a prayer that it's correct. My security comes from, wow, I am present. I can feel my body. I am expectant of incredible things to come. And I am anticipating that things might go wrong someday. And yet I have the capacity because of the people and around me and the work I've done internally to withstand choppy waters again. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that phrase, open-handedness. Mm. That is that's so important for me because we can all have different beliefs, but it's how we hold those beliefs that is that really matters. It's you know, are we completely closed off to anything else that is that is around us? Are we completely closed off to growth? Are we completely closed off to unlearning um, and relearning? Or are we open-handed to listen, to learn, to unlearn, to grow, to hear opinions and voices that come from a different place than ours? You know, it, um, and somebody and two people, two people who disagree, who have different beliefs, but have that open-handed approach, will actually have a be able to have a healthy conversation. Um, but two people who hold the who hold different beliefs with closed hands. Will, 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 you know, well, won't won't be able to do that. Um, it, though, two people who have closed hands, who have different beliefs, have more in common than people who um, have. Um, what, what was the what's the, what's the metaphor? I've lost the metaphor. Um, people with different beliefs, they have more in common than people who have um, the same beliefs but hold them differently. I think that's yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah you're um, absolutely right. They do. They just, they get this opportunity to say like, I don't actually know, but I'm willing to ask questions and I'm okay coming to a non-conclusion. I'm okay coming to gray space and thinking, okay, there's something out there I don't understand. And I feel very strongly that when people tell me they agree wholeheartedly with me, I'm like, oh, you probably are lying to me. Not because you are intentionally trying to lie as like draw close, but I just don't think you are hearing me because I know for a fact you don't agree with me wholeheartedly on every front. That would be bananas. I don't agree with anybody about everything 
there's no one I agree with about everything. That's the beauty of life. I get to be diverse and different and unique and specifically weird in my own way. And you don't get to claim that. That's the one thing I am certain about. I get to be holy and uniquely me. And if my faith is any indicator, that is what sets me apart. That's what call, make, means I'm a masterpiece. That's what means I've been uniquely formed. And that, I think, is the part we miss when we are so stuck in security or, or just obsessed with being certain about an outcome or about um, using our faith to comfort us, which is, there's nothing wrong with that. But when we get to a place where we have to defend ourselves or feel like we have to defend the process that we are going through as grievers, it becomes so damaging both to ourselves and to other people who are just trying to hear our story. But it's, it's the, uh, yeah, it's that, that's a different conversation. I'll stop there. <laughs> no, no, it's, yeah, it's fine. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's right. We all, there's no, there's nothing prescriptive about grief is that we all experience it differently. Um, and there's no, there's no one right, one correct path to, to dealing with grief and no one correct outcome. Um, I say this all the time. We're all on different journeys. We're all on our own unique journeys and we should allow each other to have those journeys and just love and support each other in those journeys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so what is the biggest lesson that you have learned about about grieving and the grief process? I think the biggest lesson I've taken away from it is that there's no healed. It's ongoing. Healing is always ongoing. I wanted to believe that eventually I would be okay with grief, with losing my mom, with losing my grandparents, with infertility, with miscarriage, with any other type of loss I've dealt with, reckoning with it and feeling like this will be okay someday. Um, and the truth is that I don't think it, it will. I think there are some losses that will never be okay. Not that they're not natural and expected, but it still doesn't mean I have to be okay with it. However, learning how to move differently through my grief means taking myself from seeing it, the loss in my life and just waiting for heal, to be healed, whether that's because I'm believing in miraculous prayer or I'm believing that I just pray and wait and let time do its thing. Uh, I have realized it takes so much more than just waiting to, in order to get to a path of healing. So I think that we go from having sight about our pain and our trauma to asking questions about it and gaining some insight from from a distance, from this compassionate observational point of view for ourselves. And from there, choosing to take action and deciding, well, I, I'm seeing this thing in my life. I've got some insight about what's hurting and why it's continually hurting me as opposed to um, hurting and then I'm dealing with like the aftermath of that. But this thing that's continually bothering me or really this untended grief that keeps coming up and learning how to take action on behalf of myself, on behalf of future me who wants wholeness and who wants to feel more connected, mind, body, soul, and spirit, right? Um, and getting to a place where then I experience a moment of healing. And it's not this big, aha, I have been made well moment. It is a, it's as simple as this. My daughter is seven and she's learning uh, 
subtraction with double and triple digits, right? And she had to encounter, she encountered borrowing this week. So on Monday, she's looking at the math and she's so frustrated because you can't take zero out of, you can't take seven out of zero. And I said, oh, that's borrowing, but you're really upset. So I'm not going to teach it to you right now. Okay, great, mom. Thanks. The next day, she looks at the paper. It's a different problem, but she says, Mom, I don't know how to do borrowing right now. And I said, But wait a minute. You recognized borrowing. That means you're learning how to do it. And she was like, Ah, I don't think so, Mom. And she was too upset. So we didn't touch it that day. But this morning, we realized your homework's due today and it's not finished. Let's work on it at breakfast. She looks down. She goes, okay, this is borrowing. I need to take 10 from this column and put it over here to make this a 10. And then I can take the seven away and get three. And I looked at her and I said, do you see how slowly but surely you learned borrowing? It's the same with healing. It's recognizing those little moments of I'm not healed versus, oh, I noticed that that hurts me. I don't have to do anything about it right now. I just have to notice that that hurts me. Okay, next time it comes up, I will have a different perspective and a different way to approach it and say like, oh, that's that thing that hurts. Instead of going so close, I'm going to just wave at it from over here and it's going to feel differently. And I think that that progression of just revelation is what restores us to ourselves. It's that sense of regaining self and autonomy and even control over what has harmed us or what we encounter. It's this... Mm -hmm. It's an incredible way to begin moving through life again with, I don't know, an increased level of emotional and spiritual maturity that just becomes foundational for everything else we encounter. Mm. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. That's (laughs) fantastic. Um, This has been a great conversation. Um, I love talking about this stuff, especially from, especially with somebody who's got shared experience. It's always a, <laughs> and you probably understand this now that it's it's a, when you talk when you talk when you talk with somebody who's literally been through what you've been through, yeah, because not everyone has, it, right? You come across similar patterns and similar lessons that you've learned, and you know, um, little things that the only you kind of, that almost kind of only people who've been through what you've been through know, right? And yeah, it's validating. And, um, yeah, it is. And um, uh, so thank you. Um, and where can people connect with you in your work? Good question. So I'm <laughs> active on Twitter, as you know, and Instagram. My handle is at Mandy Capehart. My website is the same, at Mandy K- or it's just mandycapehart.com. And my book, Restorative Grief, Embracing Our Losses Without Losing Ourselves, is a 31-day guidebook and memoir about moving through faith practice with open hands with a gentle curiosity towards ourselves that is uh, hopefully intended to create some new space. And if you want to copy of that, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Fantastic. Great. great. Yeah. I would recommend checking that out. Um, so uh, thank you, Mandy. Um, really appreciate you coming on the show. And Absolutely. Um, it's great to learn from you and uh, hear your story. So uh, thank you so much. And uh, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. 